0: Hey, Chris, it's Shujin Tribble. Yes, that's Shujin Tribble. First off, I am one of your newest outcasts. Thank you very much for all the stuff that you've done. Yeah, it took me a long time to finally get the chance to listen to the podcast. And I'm not going to go ahead and say that you hooked me, but you showed me something that was really, really special. And after listening to all of the replies and responses that you've been getting from all of your listener feedback, I was finally able to figure out for myself, why? What is it that sets you apart from whatever else? And admittedly, I can't speak for all the other podcasts out there, of course, since I only know of two. Yours being, of course, one of them. I won't mention the other one because that would be self-serving, and I wouldn't do that to you on your own show. What I figured out was that you bring life to every single one of the characters that graces your story. It's what it is. Every single one of them has a life. Each one of them has a history. They have a way of being. They have stuff. Your universe has its own life. It has its own rules. It has its own heartbeat you put a lot of thought and energy into this. That's why. That's why people have been loving what you do. Because it's not just a story. It's not just a piece of fiction. It's a whole world that you created. So kudos to you. Now, item number two. I know the great god Murphy keeps roaring its ugly head at you every time you put out a new chapter, or seemingly so. For what it's worth, I'd be more than happy, be more than proud, to stand with you each time he shows up. But you kind of knew that already. Item last. Every drop of support, every drop of encouragement, every kudo, every pat on the back, every ego boo that you've gotten so far, my friend, you earned every single one of I'm proud to know you, and I'm very proud that you get to be my voice bitch once in a while. If you guys really want to know a little bit more as to why Chris is my voice bitch, let him tell it to you, or not, as the case may be. Like I said, I don't want to be any more self-serving than he is, but let's just go ahead and say I'm very glad that he's been able to do for me on many an occasion, and not just voice work. Thank you, Chief. Thank you very, very kindly. And now, if you would be so kind, could you maybe perhaps please go ahead and put chapter nineteen on now? Ha. Till next time, I wish you the peace I no longer have. I wish you the strength that I've learned. I wish you well.
1: Well, like they say, ask and you shall receive. Welcome to Outcast, Episode nineteen. Outcast is a science fiction podcast novel written and read by Chris Fitzgerald. This novel contains mature subject matter, language, and violence, so listener discretion is strongly advised. I wouldn't be surprised if this episode is falling on a lot of deaf ears. To say that 2010, yes, I said 2010, was a year of ups and downs for me would be an understatement. However, it's the new year now, and I'm feeling a lot better about the direction in which my life is heading. I can only hope that as the year progresses that I can overcome any speed bumps along the way and keep moving forward. In all the time in between episodes, I've gotten many well wishes from all of you, through emails, IMs, shouts on different sites. And for all that, I cannot thank you enough. I also had the opportunity this year to learn just what kind of impact this little project of mine has had on some people. Now, I've heard people say much the same thing about their own shows, but when you actually hear it from someone face-to-face, it really puts things into perspective. So I'm going to keep the opening chit-chat here to a minimum, mostly because you didn't tune in to hear me rant and rave. You came for the story, and damn it, I plan to deliver. So without further ado, here we go, without cast. Chapter 19 Every question has an answer. Finding those answers is often never easy and sometimes what we find makes us wonder if we should have started looking in the first place. Despite what philosophers and advocates will tell you, there's always only one answer to a question. No matter how you try to manipulate or spin that answer, at its core is the truth. For better or worse, the truth is simply that. It is not subjective, not contextual, and most certainly not dependent upon one's point of view. Truths are truths, and no matter how many times you rethink or recalculate, the result is always the same for better or for worse. The conversation with Tomas stuck with me. I played it over and over again in my head as I reported for work, changed, endured Shariah's endless attempts at flirting, and finally reported to the break room for my assignment. I must have been completely immersed in my own thoughts because I barely noticed how full the room was until I heard the sound of a throat clearing. Even after I looked up, my brain still took a full five seconds to realize the break room was packed, and not just with my fellow shift workers. My throat ran dry as I spotted first one, then four, then over a dozen uniformed officers from the Kerala City Police Department. The term uniform was perhaps a bit of an understatement, the officers I saw were all garbed in what looked like full of body armor, designed to deflect small arms fire thanks to the Geronite fibers woven into the fabric. None of them seemed to be carrying any kinds of weapons save their sidearms, which made me wonder just why they were garbed so. The person clearing his throat was someone I'd only seen once before, the first day I walked into the Port Authority's main office. I drew in a quick breath as I spied the imposing form of Ultras Barkov standing in front of the assembled officers. Flanked on either side by so many people in uniform, the white tiger looked like some kind of general. I swear, if those cool gray eyes had gazed upon me in that moment, I would have turned to ash. I'd never seen such a look of caged anger in someone's eyes. Something was wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. It appears we got ourselves a problem, Altras growled. It's going to take all you lot to sort it out. Several murmurs could be heard throughout the gathered workers. Everyone began quietly asking each other just what was going on. I glanced back at Altras and saw Sharia standing there beside him. The look on her muzzle told me that this was serious. Up to that point, I wasn't sure if she was capable of any expression other than lust. The fear in her eyes made my heart tighten. Altras waved forward one of the officers. Normally, those of a Serval lineage were of a slight build. However, the one who stepped up looked like he could pummel a full-grown lion into paste with his little finger. This here is Sergeant Scoffit, said Altras. He'll tell you what's going on. With that, the White Tiger stepped aside and let the Serval address us. About an hour ago, we received an anonymous tip that someone is attempting to smuggle a shipment of caronite into the city via the Corrala City docks, he said. I don't think I need to emphasize the severity of this situation, nor should I have to overstate how important it is that this shipment be found and soon. He wasn't kidding. Caronite is a key chemical ingredient used to create explosives, both military-grade and industrial. I think the reason it's considered an ingredient in several compounds is because of its inherent instability in its raw state. In its unrefined liquid form, caronite is one of the most volatile chemicals in existence. A small vial of it is enough to take out a city block. An entire cargo container filled with it could level not only the docks, but a good chunk of the city as well. We'll work in teams of four, the sergeant continued. Two dock workers teamed with two officers— Mr. Barcaf has authorized us to open every container, both on the docks and on every ship in the harbor, if needs be. This was met with a few groans from the workers, but that all ceased with a warning growl from the dockmaster. The sooner you quit your bitching and moaning about it, growled Altress, the sooner we'll get this done, all right? The group went silent. That's better, he said. Now, let's get you split up. All operations on the docks ceased. The crane stopped lifting, the transport skimmers stopped moving, and all those not involved in the search dropped what they were doing. In a matter of mere minutes, the entire ship side of the dockyards became as silent as junk town. The familiar background noise of powered cranes, clanking metal, and the whirring of servos was gone. In its place was the gentle lapping of the water against the ships and docks. The place seemed dead somehow, muted by this ominous feeling of dread. The workers had been paired off in such a way that at least one member of each team had the appropriate security credentials to override the container locks. Normally, it was considered a federal offense to open these containers without the express permission of either the cargo's holding company or a representative of the carrying ship's home port. Given the circumstances, however, a special permit had been obtained by the police through the Ministry of National Defense. When it came to matters of potential terrorism, the Ministry had the power to override even the most protective of laws. The other member of the team of workers had the responsibility to catalog each container as it was inspected. When a container was opened, the worker would scan its contents, cross-reference it with its original manifest to verify an accurate inventory, and then perform one final scan prior to the container being resealed. This kind of tracking would keep the advocates and accountants satisfied that no opportunistic looting was taking place. The two officers on each team of four were also responsible for different duties. Only one officer from the break room was assigned to each pair of workers. When they left the break room, they were met by the other assigned officer, who was garbed in the heavy armor of a bomb disposal specialist. I thought the regular officers looked intimidating in their body armor. These guys looked downright titanic, clad in something that looked like it could deflect an artillery shell. As the junior member on the team, my job was that of the catalog keeper and inventory taker. My partner was a grizzled old lion named Talbo Severus. He was a hard enough worker, but like hard liquor, you could only really take him in small doses. He was a bit of a storyteller, and tended to get rather long-winded when he started talking about the good old days back in his home country of Lakaya, Like many of his fellow countrymen, Talbo had fled with his family when the last civil war had broken out. Even though the majority of the fighting had died down, the smaller guerrilla strikes against the ruling monarchy were enough to keep those who'd fled from returning. I felt oddly relieved that this situation had silenced Talbo somewhat. Despite the air of danger around us, I couldn't help but continue thinking about what Tomas had said, and was thankful I didn't have to consciously try to tune out yet another story from the good old days. In truth, it was hard enough to keep up with the rather quick pace we were keeping. It seemed that just as I finished with one entry, Talbot was feeding me another. We finally stopped after about three dozen containers to catch our collective breaths. I took a few minutes to go over the information i collected on the data pad to make sure everything was in order despite how distracted I'd been thinking about Tomas and what he'd said. I managed to not make any mistakes. I smirked. Maybe I had a real future as a dock worker. Everything all right? I looked up to see Tabo standing in front of me. Hm? Oh, fine, I said. Just making sure everything's okay. I held up the data pad. Not just that, he said, putting his hand up. You've been awfully quiet since this whole thing started. I know you're not much of a talker, but I ain't heard a peep out of ye all night. I just didn't. I sighed. I knew he wouldn't let up until I placated him somehow. I had to think fast. I I received some news yesterday. News about my parents. Oh? Talbot knew my story. He coaxed it out of me a few weeks back when I was assigned to him. What'd you find out? Not much, really, I said. But apparently there are a few lingering questions about their accident. Something the police can help with? he asked. I shook my head. No. Like I said, it's just a few questions that have come up, but not enough to have the police investigate. I shrugged. I guess I'm wondering if there's something I should do with the information. Why wouldn't you want to find out? he asked. I mean... Is this something bad? Were you folks involved in something? I don't think so, I said. I just... What if I don't like what I find? Wouldn't it be better just to live my life? I came here to... To start over, not dwell on... The past. I was going to the lowest level of the seven hells for this. But as much as I was lying, it felt good to tell someone about my dilemma convoluted as his particular version was. "'If you ask me,' he said after a few moments, "'not knowing's worse than knowing the truth. Even if you don't like the answers, it's far better than always wondering about it.' Just then, one of the officers approached us and indicated that it was time to continue. "'Something to think about,' he said as we moved to catch up. "'Hm. Something to think about, indeed.' Two hours later, we were all back in the break room, drinking Chakrala and being debriefed by the police sergeant. An hour earlier, one of the other teams had found the cache of caronite, thankfully not hooked up to any kind of detonation device. In fact, whoever sent it had taken enough care to ensure it was in a frozen, inert state before shipping it here. Now that the cache was found, it was time for the detectives to do their thing. The container was now isolated, and until further notice that particular section of the docks would be cordoned off. Altrus wouldn't be too happy with having to reposition everything, but with any luck the investigation would be over by week's end. The two officers that had been with Talbot and I were sitting opposite us. It felt so surreal, socializing with them as though they were normal people. I realized that they were, but as a cub I was raised to respect and fear law enforcement. I'd always thought them to be above the rest of us, as though by donning that uniform they became something more than a normal person. Yet, as they sat there, much of that aura of intimidation had faded away. It was kind of thrilling, being able to just sit and talk with them. So, said the one who'd been clad in heavy armor, his name was Vince. I heard a bit about what you were talking about earlier, about your parents. I nodded, trying to keep the churning in my stomach to a bare minimum. You sure the police can't help? I doubt it, I said. Like I said, it's not much more information. Just questions, that's all. I mean, if I did find something, I'd let the right people know, but... But you're worried that you might not like what you find, Vince finished. I nodded. If you ask me, you'd be better off asking those questions and getting those answers. "'And what if I end up not finding those answers at all?' I countered. "'It's not always about the destination,' said Vince. "'You might not find the answers you're looking for, "'but at least you'll know in your heart that you tried.' "'Is that why you do what you do?' I asked. "'I mean, not every case gets solved.' "'No,' he said. "'But you're right. "'When I put on this uniform, I do it knowing that every day,' I'm trying to make things better, and that's what's important. Knowing that you're out there fighting the good fight more than makes up for the ones that get away. You might not catch him today, but if you want to catch him tomorrow, you gotta get out there and keep working. He smiled at me. Makes sense? I nodded and thanked him for the advice. I then silently cursed the patrons for their constant nudging in this direction. As I finished my shakrala, My mind began thinking about how I would pursue this. I still had no real hope of solving this mystery. But maybe Vince and Talbot were right. Maybe, for my own peace of mind, it was worth it to at least give it a try. I had no idea then of what I'd learn. Had I known, I never would have tried. Takee was still awake when I arrived home. She greeted me with a warm hug and a wide smile. Welcome back, she said. Then her brow furrowed. You seem troubled. Is everything all right? I told her about the events of the day, from meeting with Tomas to the bond threat at the docks. I also told her about what Tomas had said about solving the mystery behind my attack if I hadn't thought before that the patrons were determined to push me towards learning the truth. The moment Takei agreed with both Tomas and Vins, I was convinced. If there's even a chance you could end this, she said, it's worth taking it. I know, I said. Even if I didn't recover the Kalpak outright, if I could somehow point the clans in the right direction, it could be enough for me to appeal my exile. High appeal, as it's called, is an exile's one chance to contest their fate. It was a risky thing to do and required the exile to have absolute proof of their innocence. If the council approved, the slate was wiped clean and the exile was welcomed back into their clan. If not, well, the chamber of the high council always had a standing regiment of Shatlia present. My mind was still reeling, but my body was having none of it. After the events of the day, I desperately needed sleep. I felt a monstrous yawn come to my jaws. It might be worth taking, I pleaded, but maybe I can wait until morning? She smiled and led me over to the mats. Before long, we were snuggled up under the blankets, holding each other tightly. I let the feel of her body next to mine calm my mind. If I could, I would have made that moment last forever. Life doesn't do that, though, does it? No. It always moves, and always forward. There's never any going back. No do-overs. No chances to go back and take an alternate path. Yet even thinking about finding that truth, I'd set both Takei and I on a path that would shape our days from that moment on. I couldn't fight it. I had to find out. I had to try and learn the truth. I had to solve the mystery lest I go mad. But at the very least, it could wait until morning. Everything about it felt strange. Felt off. As I enjoyed a breakfast of cereal, fruit, and a steaming cup of tea, my mind began thinking about that night. The night my life turned upside down. It had been the first time since waking up that I'd actually sat down and thought about it. Now that I was, a lot of things about that night were making no real sense whatsoever. "'I mean, swords?' I asked. "'Why swords? Why not a gun or even a knife?' I took a spoonful of cereal. "'Seems a little strange.' "'Not really,' said Takee, butting into a rather juicy slice of melon." I smiled as she tried to lick the juice off her chin. If the clans are anything like the tribes, then conventional weapons would be forbidden on clan lands, or at least their use would not be tolerated. Which would mean I didn't want to make the connection. As much as the truth was screaming at me, I didn't want to acknowledge it. The mere gesture of respecting clan law meant that my attack had been more than a simple robbery. That the Kalpak hadn't surfaced on the black market so far also meant that this had been more than it seemed. Still, surely someone so bent on stealing something so valuable wouldn't just hang on to it for sentimental reasons. So, I concluded, it had to have been someone who knew the Kumal was happening that night, and who knew the Kalpak would be there. But who all knew? Maybe another clan, offered Taki. Perhaps it wasn't about money, but about possessing the artifact. It wouldn't do them any good, I countered. If another clan came forth claiming to have found the Kalpak, there would be too many questions. Perhaps if it was too soon, she said. Maybe whoever has it is willing to wait until things calm down before revealing it. But again, to what end? It made no sense. Prestige aside, the Kalpak was nothing more than an artifact an icon of a bygone era. There was no real power behind it, no supernatural endowment came from its possession, and even if it did, I'd wager Ratel wouldn't look too favorably upon those who'd stolen it from a child. Who would stand to benefit from stealing it? Taki went silent. I mentally replayed what I'd asked myself just a few moments before to see if I was growing agitated. The look on her face wasn't one of concern, but determined thought. I'm sorry, I said with a chuckle. Not exactly breakfast conversation. No, it's all right, she said, smiling. It's just a big question, that's all. She took another bite of melon. What was it you said about your exile before? You weren't supposed to be banished originally, were you? No, I said, finishing my tea. Lars Rondoki wanted me dead. Wanted father to do it, too. I snorted rather derisively as I recalled that day. My chest tingled slightly from the remembered pain. By all rights, I should be dead. Lars was adamant. He... The truth was there, in plain sight announcing its presence. It rushed up upon me with such force that it threatened to catapult my breakfast all over the woman I loved. I began to shake... I couldn't sit still any more. My breathing was growing heavy. I was excited and terrified at the same time. By the gods, I said. That's it. That's... it. What is it? asked Tiki. It was Lars, I said after a moment. Lars and his clan. They orchestrated the whole thing all to keep the Kalpak in their possession. I stood up and began pacing. It makes perfect sense. Lars was the Kalshara for ten years straight. Last year he wagered the Kalpak as an added reward. But why? Perhaps the Council wanted it done, said Taki. I never really noticed it at first, but she seemed completely nonplussed by my revelation. I really couldn't blame her. She had no idea of the history between the Tiger's Paw and Midnight Fang clans. Regardless, like you said, it was a risk. One he probably wasn't willing to take. So, I said, still pacing. Lars puts up the Kalpak, pack, perhaps not by choice. He's sure he's going to win, otherwise he would have resisted it completely. However, on the off chance that he loses, he has someone waiting, waiting to take down the winner. ''That should have been your father,'' said Dekhi. ''But I took his place,'' I finished. My mind flashed back to that night. ''Had they all been Black Panthers?'' I couldn't really remember, but then again they had all been wearing masks. In the night, even their profiles were hidden from me. I shook my head. ''What clan, if any, they belonged to was irrelevant.'' Those four had been tasked with murdering whomever they encountered with the cow pack. They saw I had it, and by their orders should have killed me. But they didn't, said Taki. Perhaps they thought they did, but by some miracle you survived. That threw Lars' plans into disarray, I continued. It should have been a clean kill. The Kalpak disappears for a while, and then in a blaze of triumph, the Midnight Fang miraculously recovers it. And out of sheer gratitude, concluded Tekki, they're allowed to retain it. Those more religious would have deemed it the will of the god, or patrons. Yes, I said. Yes, but I didn't die right away. I survived. So why not kill me while I was in a coma? Again, Tekki went silent as she thought about it. I continued to pace, my mind trying feverishly not to lose the momentum. With each piece falling into place, I could feel the next one trying hard to present itself to me. It was all wild speculation, but it was making sense. If the clans were involved, the only one with enough influence to execute such a plan was the Midnight Fang. It all seemed logical, regardless of my feelings towards them. My feelings? Of course. The feud. They couldn't, I concluded. The Midnight Fang and the Tiger's Paw clans have had a blood feud between them for generations. Our clans served different warlords during the time before the Ascensions. Since that time, though, the Tiger's Paw clan has turned away from the old ways. I stopped pacing. The outright fighting's over, but the hatred is still there. They couldn't kill me without drawing attention to themselves, I continued. If they'd killed me in the hospital so soon after Father's victory, it would have looked too suspicious. "'So they waited to see if you ever recovered,' said Tekki. "'And when you did, and when I did, Lars petitioned for my death. "'He knew that if I was able to explain what happened to me, "'my family would openly accuse him of treachery. "'That alone would weaken his influence over the clans.' "'I sat down. "'That momentum I was feeling earlier beginning to slow. "'It all makes sense,' I said. The clan of the Midnight Fang attacked me to steal back the artifact. There it was. The cold, hard truth of it all laid out before me. I kept going over it again and again in my head, hoping, praying that I was wrong. But no matter how many times I tried, the answer always came up the same. I'd been set up made to take the fall in a plot that had mounted to no greater end than one man's vanity. I must have slumped slightly in my chair, because a moment later Takei was kneeling before me, pulling my hands into hers. I saw her looking up at me, her amber eyes filled with a pleading, hopeful look. I knew what she was thinking. And God's forgive me, I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe in that hopeful look. Instead, I looked away, trying as hard as I could to keep the tears from falling. What is it? taki asked. What's wrong? I mean, now that you know, you could talk to your grandfather, right? She brushed a hand over the side of my muzzle. He could approach the council. You could get that high appeal you were... I pulled her hand away from my face. She gasped at the suddenness of it. I tried my best to keep a calm look on my face, but the look in her amber eyes told me I was failing miserably. Talon? What's wrong? I... I turned away before I fully answered. I couldn't bear to say anything while looking into those eyes. I tried to hold it back as long as I could, but eventually the words came out. I only prayed that she'd forgive me in time for not being able to face her when I finally said... I... I can't. And so there we have it. Now, I've just got a few little housekeeping items to mention here. First off, Chapter 20 will not be another year in the making. (laughs) It's finished, and I'm already writing madly away on Chapter 21. I'm trying to stay at least one half or one full chapter ahead in terms of written work versus recorded from now on. Secondly, the voicemail you heard at the beginning from my friend Shujin, and thank you for that by the way, reminded me that with the turning of the year, the Ride for Roswell fundraising campaign will be starting up again. Now I mentioned this last time I was involved, and this year I'm hoping to do a bit of a preemptive strike here to let you all know about it. Now, last year's efforts really paid off in the Second Life campaign, as we raised roughly $2,000 in less than six months. Now, When you think about the exchange rate of the Second Life Linden dollar to the U.S. dollar, that's a pretty significant amount. This year, we want to do better. And if any of you are interested in helping out this year, please shoot me an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. And finally, I'd like to announce that Outcast is moving to a new site. No, not right away, but when the novel's finished, I'll be taking down the current blog at outcastnovel.wordpress.com, and instead, we'll be posting any updates to the new and improved blog at y05.ca/Outcast. I've had that domain for a while now, but really haven't done much with it except to practice a bit with things like WordPress, a couple of gallery apps, and the like. Someday I'll tie everything together on it, but for now and in the future, that's where you'll find any and all new Outcast-related content. Now, as I said, the regular blog and feed will keep going for now, but when the book is finally finished, I'll be looking to switch things over completely. Now, I also mentioned at the beginning about the feedback and well-wishes I've been getting since my little hiatus here, and while there are far too many to read aloud on the show here, I do want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for every bit of it. For all the trials and tribulations 2010 gave me, it was those tidbits of positivity that kept me going through the worst of it. I'm not saying I'm out of the woods yet, but at least I can see the end now. And with that, I think I'll close off. As usual, all my contact info will be in the show notes. And until next time, this is Chris, signing off. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Outcast, a podcast novel written and read by Chris Ditson. For more information, please visit the show's website at outcastnovel.medio.com. Feel free to leave an email or soundbite at outcastnovel at gmail.com Theme music for Outcast is the song Electric Blue performed by Droom, which you can find on the Podsafe Music Network at www.musicale.com Cover art for Outcast was done by Jason Frieden Check out his site at www.jasonfrieden.com .com and again thanks for listening.